Hey guys, so today I'm going to talk about a topic that I find really interesting, which is how to make blockchains grow. And this is from an article that I published recently about industrial policy practices that blockchain platforms can learn from nation state economies. And the motivation for me to write this is because, as I have talked for multiple times on this podcast, that if you look at, you know, compare the blockchain economies in the metaverse and the nation state economies in the physical, you know, um, economic structures, there are a lot of similarities between the two. So, and if you look at the nation state economies, they've had hundreds of years of experience in developing their economy and growing their economies. And there are some tried and true practices of how to do that. So if these two are similar, you know, at least I share a lot of similarities, uh, though they're not, uh, you know, identical things, obviously, then you can argue that the blockchain economies and blockchain platforms can learn a lot from national economies in terms of how to grow their on-chain economies and, uh, you know, develop a vibrant ecosystem within their platform. So that is the motivation, you know, um, for writing this article. And I summarized about, you know, seven types of industrial policy tools that nation state economies often use to grow their economies. And I talked about uh, what could be the blockchain counterparts for those policies. So when I wrote about this, I know this is going to be, you know, kind of controversial because industrial policy itself is sort of a controversial topic, even in economic policy circles. And people argue back and forth about how much industrial policy there should be and how much involved the government should be in their economy, right? And in the blockchain circles, this is even more controversial because, as you know, a lot of people in the crypto space, they're very libertarian, right? Whenever you mention something like regulation or policy or government, like people hear these words and, you know, they're completely pissed off. So I'm well aware of those, but I still, you know, I think there is a very strong case to say that blockchains can learn a lot from national economies. So what are those industrial policy tools that blockchains can learn? So a few of them that are listed in the article. Basically, if you look at, you know, uh, modern economies from the West to the East, the most successful experiences in growing national economies in recent decades, obviously, is Asia, right? Uh, countries like Japan, Korea, China. But actually, if you go back, you know, uh, two, three hundred years, you realize that actually, you know, countries like U.S., you know, um, UK and other European countries, they also use a lot of industrial policies in their early days of development, especially in growing their economies. And so basically, these involve things like, you know, subsidizing their strategic industries. So strategic, strategic industries, meaning those will have the most leverage, give you the most leverage in terms of, you know, creating some kind of network effect for other industries to grow. And also, you know, those industries that you're in the best position to, you know, to, to make a dent in. So subsidize those industries and secondly, attract foreign investments because those bring in new technologies and bring in foreign demand to your economy. And thirdly, protect your firms, domestic firms from foreign competition when your domestic firms are still small and weak. Now, this does not obviously, you know, go on forever. You don't want, you know, your domestic firms to, to forever depend on you. But, you know, at initial stage of development, this is like um, a tried and true practice for a lot of countries. 
Um, and then the fourth one is sponsor R&D, research and development. In you know, it can be the general research areas of uh, you know increasing productivity and technology progress, or some targeted, you know, R&D support for your strategic strategic industries. And then there's the you know investment in public goods. So the public goods are things like are 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 the kind of investments that are not sufficiently supplied by the private sector because the benefits of these investments have very strong positive externalities, meaning the firms who invest in these things may not necessarily be the sole beneficiary of the fruit of their investment. So there is, in general, a undersupply of these uh, public goods in in the ecosystem. Things like you know crucial infrastructure and education would be good examples in modern economies, right? So it will be the public sector's job to invest in these public goods, and uh, and and you know. Additionally, you know, build public and private partnerships in lo a lot of these investments because a private sector may be more, you know, efficient. Um, actually, not maybe. <laughs> they are in most cases more efficient in carrying out some a lot of these investments, and they are in a better position in terms of gathering the information and knowledge needed to make these investments. But from the public sector point of view, you know, you can set broad parameters. You can, you know, provide some. You know policy incentives, and you can co-invest with the private sector in making some of these investments happen in through public-private partnerships. And 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 lastly, you know you want to you know as a public entity or as a government, you want to create very strong institutional apparatus to actually execute all of your industrial policies because you need very strong, capable people to actually work with your. Private sector firms to make things happen, to actually advocate and hustle on behalf of your private sector. So those are in a nutshell, you know, some of the industrial policies that I mentioned in the article, and I also talked about what are the blockchain counterparts that I have seen being practiced in the field by current, you know, by public blockchain platforms. Um, that are similar to these industrial policies. So I'm gonna link the article below, and you can, you know, uh, take a look if you're interested. So I got uh, uh, some questions, uh, interesting questions about this article, and uh, again, unsurprisingly, <laughs> some people are pretty pissed because um, they they think they think this is somehow walking backwards towards like uh, you know financial freedom or. Or uh, you know, increasing the freedom of the economy or decentralization. So, um, so 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 yeah, I, I think these are these are things that are worth worth discussing, right? So, um, but in general, I would say before I before I get into these specific questions, I would say, you know, in in general, um, in early in early stages. So because. You know the the whole crypto industry, blockchain industry, really hasn't been there for that long, right? So we started in two thousand eight, and it was a you know pretty slow start. Start. So maybe the, I would say really you you had a strong community following that was a history less than ten years. So initially, it's really most of the people follow this industry had a very strong libertarian bent, right? Because it's a kind of a fringe. Uh, you know, non-mainstream culture in in this sector for at least for the initial people who are following this sector. Now things are you know greatly changed as any industry when it's going through 
going towards becoming more mainstream, right? But there traditionally there is this very strong libertarian ethos that that is basically to say that any kind of government regulation or intervention is bad. And this new brand new financial system is going to be built on totally permissionless ground and anybody can do anything. So uh, nobody will come here, nobody will come bother us or regulate us, and uh, we can do whatever we want and have complete total and freedom, right? So that is quite understandable, and that is actually a very strong, you know, uh, liberal, there is very strong liberal tradition in all Western culture as well, especially here in the United States, right? So um, it's, it's very understandable, especially given that uh, a lot of the things that the public sector or the government sector does is kind of a counterproductive or counter um, supportive <laughs> of actual economic development or, or the welfare of their economy, right? However, it is not to say that, well, that, that is a, you know, very far away from saying that no regulation or no institutional intervention is needed in order for an economy to grow. But because actually, if you look at, you know, if you actually look at the history of all the successful major economies in the world, I can tell you there is not a single one, okay? Not a single economy, United States, UK included, at least in their initial stage of development, not a single one that is that was without active intervention from the government or without active industrial policy. And this is because when the economy is small, it's like when a company, when a startup that is just, uh, you know, getting started, you have this so-called cold start problem. You, you, you're initially, essentially trying to bootstrap this whole ecosystem of potentially very grand scale from nothing, right? So if you think about like uh, the, the typical, you know, online marketplaces, these types of, you know, business models, if you can pull it off, it's great, right? A great business model. But they're notoriously very, very hard to pull off from the beginning because you have this chicken and egg problem with supply and demand side of your marketplaces, right? And that is only two-sided marketplace. That's already hard enough to bootstrap a whole economic ecosystem where there's so many different production sectors and consumers and uh, investors and producers all interact with each other, it is a very, very hard task. So how people, so that's why industrial policies are needed, especially at the beginning stage, because you really need to target your, your limited resources in the sectors, in the activities that will give you the most leverage to grow in order for you to, you know, have something, um, <laughs> have something to show for after a period of time as a basis for a more broad-based or a more um, free-form approach of a private sector-led growth. So that's why all of these countries, at least in the initial stage, if you, you know, read histories of the United States um, of uh, economic development, uh, that the U.S. had a lot of, you know, protectionist pro policies to protect its industries, in, including, you know, tariff policies, uh, subsidy policies, and, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the U.S. Ov obviously also invested a great deal tremendously in infrastructure, 
in connecting different parts of the country together in order to build a industrial co corridor, especially in the middle part of the country. Okay, so all these, uh, <laughs> so and, and and people people often say, okay, you look at the U.S. It's like a you know free economy, free capitalism. Well, I would say you know yeah. Um, in a certain sense, yes, but if you look into the details, that is absolutely not the case, okay? And uh, let alone to say the, the more modern, more recent examples of, uh, you know, um, Southeast Asia, for example. So those economic success stories are actually, you know, um, the, the government may be more explicit in how they execute their policies, but the tools that they use actually in essence was no different from US or UK in early years of their development to, um, you know, 200 years ago or 100 years ago. It's just that, you know, the same book uh, was different covers, <laughs> you know, styled differently, I would say. So, um, and, and the same thing with, with uh, blockchain, and uh, we'll get into some of the more details, uh, you know, in a minute after I read some of these questions, okay? So the first question from Good Luck Crypto. Government and decentralization do not belong together full, full stop. We cannot trust any government. This is due to government having their fingers in all pies that you need to have license in this for this and a permit for that. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> What's wrong with having a license and permits? Um, you know, I, I would I would challenge you in that because um, obviously nobody likes extends like very lengthy and costly bureaucratic process and a lot of things like they evolve to be that case unfortunately, but the thing is to have a for for any industry to have proper standard and uh, standard setting bodies. And uh, you know, uh, publicly, you know, uh, consensually accepted, um, you know, licensing agreements and a, like a, you know, um, public standards of how the products and services of the industry should be delivered. Those are a plus, not a minus. <laughs> okay, in the long term, those reduce the cost, the transaction cost, and uh, you know. Uh, information discovery cost on the investor and consumer part tremendously. So in a sense, in the broad scale of things, those, I would say in the ballpark, they are a plus, not a minus. In terms of how they are specifically executed, whether they're executed well, that's a totally different question, right? And, and a lot of times they're executed badly and that piss people off and create that kind of sentiment that I just read to you about. And, and this, this reader went on to say, um, I would agree with you if the government could be trusted, but they cannot, you cannot have true financial freedom with regulation or any kind of government intervention. Uh, okay, all right. So. This is something that we've already talked about, right? So there is this very strong anti-establishment ethos and culture in crypto, that very strong sentiment of, of us versus them and them being the establishment, right? So the idea is the government is out there to get the people and the people should, uh, you know, uh, to, to, should, should resist and, uh, and you know, and, and blockchain or crypto is, is a way to, to, to have that happen. So this is a really complicated philosophical, philosophical debate and I don't think we have time to get into all that, but 
Let's just say, you know, I, I, and to me, there a lot of times, the, these are, you know, the, 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 the crypto libertarian arguments, a lot of times sound like angry teenagers to me. Because it's essentially, you know, you're against everything existing, you're against every existing regime, but no good alternative being pro proposed. Or those so-called good alternatives, if you actually look under the hood or you actually observe how they are being executed, Bitcoin, for example, we'll talk in a minute, uh, <laughs> they actually, you know, uh, you, you, you can't say they, 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 are, they are better than, than, than existing alternatives. So actually, you know, this is nothing new. Most of re revolutions die this way because, you know, most of revolutions started because people are not happy with existing regimes, right? So because existing regimes has a lot of uh, bad things in it. So it's very natural that, you know, if it's bad enough that people go against it. But a lot of most of revolutions die because there is no feasible alternative being proposed that is actually workable. So a, a lot of movement, you know, like uh, eventually fail this way. For example, Occupy Wall Street is, uh, you know, one that you can uh, pinpoint uh, um, in, in, in more recent time. So my point is, if this movement, this so-called decentralization movement or, you know, blockchain movement, uh, financial freedom, uh, you know, decentralization of controls and so on and so forth, all the good things that are being promised, if they are going to be realized, uh, there has to be some compromise being made and there some has to be some you know uh design choices that need to be made that are more realistic <laughs> okay so um we we can we can get get, get more into that uh, in, in a minute so but but the bottom line is i, I think uh, my at least from my view is if you want economic growth it needs to happen it, you need to give it a strong institutional container. You need to give it strong stability and institutional guardrails um, uh, for for growth to happen. You you cannot just say, okay, everybody do everybody just does whatever whatever the hell we want, and the economy will grow, innovations will happen uh, because everybody will be able to do whatever the hell they want. That's just not the way. <laughs> Uh, economic ecosystems work. I'm sorry. Okay, so um, um, and and you can say you know it's like to to me another an analogy is like good institutions or good governance. It's like air. All right. So a lot of times when you smell something bad, you can say okay this this uh, organizational method or this institutional arrangement is bad. Let's get rid of all of it. And what you're not aware is like you're breathing air. When you're breathing air, you don't realize that that it exists and you need it, right? Until it's being completely taken away and you're thrown into chaos. Anyway, so um, next question from fractional flows. Essentially, you're describing the Chinese industrial policy and economy of the past 40 years. Is that right? Well, no, because surprisingly, you know, China has not invent invented China actually hasn't invented much new of industrial policies. It's basically, you know, it copied a lot of uh, a lot of things that other people, other countries did. You know, Japan, Korea, Singapore did in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, 
you know, modified it to to fit a kind of institutional overall like uh, institutional regime that they already have in the country. But really, in terms of the actual industrial policy, there's not much innovation there. Okay, so it's all the things that that's been done and tried before. Um, and including the things that I talked about, you know, the, the seven broad categories of industrial policies that I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, next question from Sahit S. There is a long way to go for blockchain to win. It's not only about decentralization. There is the need for regulation to be put in place. Blockchain going mainstream will require government intervention through various strategies and programs. Okay, so... Um, I, I the the problem you know the problem with government intervention and regulation in blockchains is that government don't have a lot of expertise. I mean, na nation state governments, okay, in physical economies, they don't have a lot of expertise in how blockchains work. They don't know what the hell's going on <laughs> with these on-chain economies. So that's why you see all the governments scrambling in order to catch up with uh, you know. What is DeFi and how this uh, all these ecosystems work and what are the best ways to to regulate while at the same time not hurting innovation? So that's why I think you know the public blockchains themselves, the blockchain platforms that are actually in the better place to actually implement some of the industrial policies that we mentioned, in order for their on-chain economies to grow, and it, these including some of the regulations, for example, um, in DeFi, right? So one of the, one of the examples that I gave in the article is that so after the banking crisis after the Great Depression of the 1920s um, in the United States um, uh, set up the FDIC and other you know deposit FDIC is a deposit insurance uh, corporation in the U.S. It's basically a public entity to you know guarantee the payout of uh, you know some money to the depositors if you lose money. If your bank, you know, goes bankrupt or there was a bank run or something, so it's really a public institution that was invented to boost the confidence of the U.S. banking system after the Great Depression, right? So, you have today, and I wouldn't say the same problem, but you have kind of a sort of a big problem in DeFi, which is the trust in the system, right? You have so many rug pulls, <laughs> you have. Uh, you know, so you know, so many breaches and uh, you know, uh, different um, kind of uh, hacks that you know over time <laughs> that is uh, you know eroding the confidence of people in the system. So I think it's not actually too it's not as bad as to the degree of the banking sector after the Great Depression, but you know, if for example a blockchain layer one layer two system if if they can have some kind of insurance scheme that they can organize and implement some something like that okay um that is applicable for the defi for the participating defi organizations defi applications on chain on their platform that will be a kind of institutional tool a kind of industrial policy that they can use to differentiate themselves from other chains, right? So, so, so things like that. I, I think there are tools and policies and 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 quote unquote regulations that can be better implemented by the blockchains themselves, as opposed to be implemented by 
the whatever you know physical governments. Um, okay, next question. Uh, click T clack. Um, I appreciate the thread, but I think you've taken the whole blockchain nation mental model a bit too far. Uh, well, I don't know what that means because this is a very again very deliberate comparison of between blockchains and nation state economies. Why? Because because I, I find the countries will be the closest kind of a organizational structure that we know and have today that resembles the, the you know the blockchain ecosystems. It's certainly more similar to countries. The blockchain ecosystems are more similar to countries compared to you know firms or companies because it's kind of a you know it's an ecosystem that is loosely connected it really has different you know you have so many different applications and so many groups of uh, you know people with with a different interest and they are loosely connected on this platform and they interact with each other do transactions with each other and innovate together or against each other but there is the size of loosely connected community <laughs> um, that are built on the same platform that is, uh, you know, working towards the same goal to kind of grow the same ecosystem. But at the same time, everybody has their own interest and have their own, you know, profit and loss, uh, you know, calculation, right? So I think this is a much more similar to a you know, national economy structure as opposed to a company, which is a much, much more tight knit structure and much more, you know, hierarchical or, um, um, you know, um, structured um, organization or, you know, a structured, more structured way to organizing, to organize production activities. So, so, so I really think this is the closest uh, comparison that we have. Okay, so this is not a this is a really a, a, a deliberate comparison. This is not just something that is uh, you know I, I throw out randomly. Okay, um, so next question, dual nine, nice analogy, but I think this is a bit forced. Money in crypto flows differently, and your argument your argument of state directed policy sounds very much like centralization. Crypto should not be about that to be successful. See Bitcoin. The true innovation was and still is BTC. Well, I would disagree because, um, first of all, <laughs> I think I think you know blockchain is such a new thing, right? So, um, uh, the other day I posted on Twitter um, after I think it's Andre Cronier um, said something about you know, whether Solana is a blockchain or not, because Solana is like, you know, having so much uh, trouble lately. And uh, it was like being halted for seven, eight hours the other day, right? So, um, but so, so what I said is, uh, if you look at all the technologies that we take for granted today, right? What, what, what you consider a computer has evolved so much throughout the years. 50 years ago or 40 years ago, it was this huge thing. You, you, you sit like a computer in a huge room and you have to, you know, take your visitor <laughs> to go see this computer, which is a monster sitting in one room and can do very little. But now the computer are the things that you take in your palm, right? Those are sitting in your phone. They have evolved so much. And same thing with the internet, 
Okay. The the internet, what the internet was at at the beginning when it was invest invented, to what the internet is now and the role it plays in people's life and how, <laughs> you know, uh, the kind of things that are being built on the internet and uh, how 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 the um. Uh, different players that are that are involved in the you know in the network is totally different from what you would see in the 1980s, right? So the same thing with blockchain. You know, what the hell is a blockchain? <laughs> if you go take, uh, if you go Google, like uh, what is a blockchain? You would yeah, you will get a definition of what it is. It's decentralized database, and so forth, so on and so forth, right? But seriously, this thing is still we're in a infancy stage. Of the develop in terms of the development of this type of network, we are going to see tremendous evolution of this type of ecosystem in the next 20, 30 years. So I, I think that anybody that can say that can tell you today what a blockchain is or what it should be, or how it should be governed, is full of shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just a not possible, you know. Um, how can these people be so confident in terms of, you know, in their opinion of how these platforms should be structured and should be governed? So, uh, yeah, so I, I just don't understand why people would be so like close minded about these things when when you know that none of the current uh, arrangement that you see is going to stay forever, probably. OK, and, and and I will argue the reason you see that the innovation in other layer one chains, including on Ethereum, is so much fat, faster and so much, uh, you know, more in quantity compared to Bitcoin is exactly because the, because the kind of governance structure. Now, you may say the BTC innovation is very slow uh, or very meticulous because of the, you know, the ethos of, uh, you know, uh, 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 of the development and the purpose of BTC is to stay um, as the most robust and secure and decentralized blockchain ever. Therefore, you know, people are hesitant of making more innovations on top or building additional things on top or changing the existing, you know, um, existing code or consensus, uh, consensus algorithms and so on and so forth. While that's all true, <laughs> You cannot deny this additional layer that there is no effective governance, okay, governance mechanism for the stakeholders of blockchain, of, of BTC to come into agreement of how this chain is going to evolve in the future. And then it, it becomes so the default is to do nothing, okay, compared to other chains such as Ethereum and the newer layer ones that you see today, okay, which has, you know, like it or not, a lot more centralized governance, okay? A lot more obvious in terms of who are the leaders and making things happen in this legal ecosystem, at least at this present stage, okay? So, um, I, you, you can, so, so I think it's up to debate. The kind of, if, if, it, if the type of decentralization that is to say that, uh, you know, nothing can really happen because nobody is there to make a decision. Is that type of decentralization really any better than the worst form of bureaucracy that you see <laughs> in whatever hierarchical structure of, uh, uh, you know, of production activities that you see today? I don't think it's any, I don't think it's anything better, to be honest. So, um, 
you know, so 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 that would be my opinion. <laughs> that would be my response to to this uh, to the comment. Um, you know, uh, th th to 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 me, in order for an ecosystem to grow, at least at the beginning of sta beginning stage, you need some type of decision making mechanism that involves some kind of centralization, and 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 there is no there is no point to take this, to take centralization as if it's some kind of dirty word, <laughs> okay? Um, human production activities has been organized in a hierarchical structure or in a company or in a, a marketplace. You know, it's been happening this way for hundreds of years, or you can even argue for thousands of years for a reason, okay? Because it works in a lot of cases. <laughs> it's not like a, you cannot say, okay, uh, the entire human history of how we organize production activities in the past are all completely stupid, and we're gonna throw it away completely and implement this thing called decentralization, and things will be we will live happily ever after. <laughs> That's just not gonna happen, okay? Um, so the next question uh, from the DeFi Titan: What kind of research do you think should be conducted? These days, so okay, so this is, uh, I think, in response to one of the uh, seven industrial policies that I mentioned in the article is re uh, sponsoring research and development, right? So my point is, the blockchain nations are still very small and very poor these days, and as a small poor country, the the most of our resources should not be spent in like a generalized, uh, you know, uh, uh, academic research that serves a general purpose, but with no targeted application in mind, which is the type of, you know, research and development activities that bigger governments like the United States <laughs> would do, would sponsor because they have the money, okay? Um, so for the blockchain countries, uh, block blockchain nations, uh, blockchain platforms, they are much better off, you know, spend money, spend their resources in targeted research that are immediately, more immediately useful to their platform, which means, you know, to, to me that, you know, in, in general, generally that, that means implementing whatever new development in cryptography, in scaling decentralized ledgers, um, whatever new development, uh, you know, in, 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 from, from, from academia, from more, you know, general research field um, to figure out how to implement these into existing platform, in existing public blockchain platforms. So those those are the things that I think the platforms today should focus on. OneChain um, actually does this, uh, you know, it, it really well is uh, I think Polygon, <laughs> which I would argue has not invent, invented anything new, <laughs> but is just a super fast in uh you know uh adapting adopting whatever you know new um new new technology or new development uh in in uh implementing and executing it in their ecosystem including you know some of the you know zero knowledge proof um uh, research some like a you know layer two rollups uh, they're they are yeah, like usually one of the first to implement those um but again, none of those are their own, you know, intellectual, very few of, very little is their own original IP, but they're just very fast in adopting whatever new development that are happening in the field. Okay. Um, so, 
yeah so so that that's that's an example um next question from Luis m ethereum has been successful its culture is pretty libertarian bordering on anarchist as far as i know what kind of nation state like incentives has ethereum provided okay so that this is the other thing when i say industrial policy and then a bunch of people argue with me to say look at ethereum this is like most successful layer one platform and it has no industrial policy which is absolutely not true <laughs> so um for example if you look at you know Ethereum has consensus. Consensus is like the, the, the company that is uh, sponsoring a lot of this, uh, you know, uh, the development of uh, dev toolings in Ethereum. For example, so consensus is a for-profit company. Or are they a non-profit nowadays? I don't remember exactly, but they're definitely, you know, is a, you know, pretty um, standard corporate structure. They developed a MetaMask in Fura um, and, and what else? And Truffle Suite. Uh, and they are involved in the development of a bunch of development toolings of the Ethereum ecosystem. Without those, Ethereum wouldn't have been, I would say, a half of what it is today. Okay. So the, the advantage, if you look at it, the, the, the advantage Ethereum has over other chains that are newer to a large extent. And a major component is the infrastructure it has in place. It's the you know much much richer ecosystem you know in term for the developers in terms of education, in terms of tooling, um, you know, in terms of uh, you know development libraries like uh, Open Zeppelin, you know that kind of things that makes it much easier to build on Ethereum compared to build on you know some of the other you know non EVM chains, right? And, 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 you know, I, make no mistake, those did not happen in vacuum, okay? Someone did something to make those happen. And those I would count as, you know, infrastructure investment. It may not be, you know, so, so Consensus was founded by the founder, one of the founders of, of Ethereum, right? So that, that, that's, a, that's a, you know, I would say prime example of industrial policy. Now, in terms of other industrial policies, such as subsidizing strategic industries, you know, the newer chains, they're probably, you can argue, the newer chains like Avalanche or Solana or Near, they are giving a lot more developer incentives compared to Ethereum, right? Why is that? <laughs> because they are later. Ethereum already had the first mover advantage. It already is the market leader. It's like, it's like uh, you know, it, it, all the East Asia economies that are developed, like basically leapfrogged um, from the third world countries into you know advanced countries in one generation. How did that happen? Because when you are later, when you are starting later when you are trying to catch up, you have to be extra competitive, right? Otherwise, what's, what's your basis to compete with the establishment? So those countries, those are like, uh, uh, those countries in later development stage, they have to do extra. They have to be extra resourceful and inventive in, in their, including in their industrial policies in order to catch up, okay? 
So you cannot just say you cannot say okay, um, uh, United States and uh, most of the Europe has more liberal economic systems, uh, and those are you know advanced countries as well. That proves that industrial policy is not needed. Well, it's not the case because those countries, first of all, they implemented industrial policies hundred like a one hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. Okay. Nowadays, people no longer talk a lot about those, but they did exist. That's 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 one. Number two, <laughs> when you are already a vibrant ecosystem, when your economy is already developed to a certain stage, you already have an ecosystem that is self-perpetuating. You can afford <laughs> to be less directive, so to speak. I, in other words. <laughs> There is uh, there is a like a minimum basis to execute a certain degree of freedom of economic freedom, okay. And for for countries that are starting later, they better have more targeted, more concerted effort in how they implement their development policies, okay. So I just don't think you compare Ethereum with these like newer layer ones. I don't think it's a fair comparison, okay. And thirdly. Also, it takes much longer time for Ethereum to get the amount of traction that the other alternative leading layer ones that you see today, Solana, Luna, Avalanche, for example, they they got you know the amount of traction that the time that took those chains to get the equal amount of traction, it took Ethereum much longer. <laughs> Okay, so Ethereum started in 2014. So you can argue why it is the case. Be, you know, you can argue, oh, because blockchain wasn't pretty much the same at the time. Ethereum was very new. It was the first uh, smart contract chains. It was things are extra difficult at the time, right? All true. But on the other hand, you can you 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 can you you also cannot deny that the active industrial policies of these newer chains. They played a active role in bootstrapping their growth in over a very short period of time. Okay, so um, that's that. Um, next question um, from Anatole. The question is: If you trust politicians or state monopolies to be better in allocating resources to quote unquote industries with most strategic importance. Then creative business people in a competitive market. The combined creativity of many is superior to the wisdom of any single leader. I'm not arguing about that. <laughs> okay, so nobody is saying like、uh, he's basically saying politicians are stupid. <laughs> Don't let politicians to make decisions. That's why I'm saying you need to have like blockchain platforms need to have need to create the. Competent institutional apparatus to actually execute their industrial policies, right? So,、um, and also, you know, I, I give some examples in the article that there are, you know, if you look at countries like Japan or Korea, they have and Singapore, they have some very competent bureaucracy <laughs> to actually execute the policies that they executed. Okay, so. This is it's it's not the kind of thing like a lot of times people people have these、uh, policy or institutional debate
to say, okay, is the democracy better or is it some kind of, you know, um, more centralized uh, um, regime better? A lot of times these discussions are mute because it, it's completely detached from who are actually running these systems, okay? A, a, a democratic system can be good or bad depending on who's running it. You cannot, at the end of the day, the quality of people who are in charge of these institutions, who are running institutions, I would say is more important than any specific regimes that you can have. So you, the prime example is you look at, you know, um, wash the, there, there is, a, for example, a set of economic and political uh, policy ideologies that the West, um, specifically the United States, exported to a lot of countries in the 80s and 90s um, under the so-called Washington Consensus. Okay, So this is basically a set of uh, pretty liberal economic policies basically involves, you know, democratic decision-making process in your political regime and uh, liberalizing the product market and uh, lower the tariff and uh, get rid of regulations and do free trade and uh, flow, free flowing exchange rate. And so, so pretty much, you know, open up your economy and be liberal <laughs> and let everybody have a good time. So that kind of philosophy. Except this is not the kind of this not the kind of policy regime that actually implemented by the United States or any other Western economies at their initial stage of development, but it is being exported, being recommended by these advanced countries to developing countries in Africa and Latin America. What is the result? <laughs> okay, so. Um, you you have you have countries in in Africa in Latin America that that implemented all sorts of uh, you know you know uh, representative democracy regimes to dismal result also implemented a kind of you know open market you know liberal liberalization regimes to dismal result okay so at the end of the day I think you know it, it's a, it's again it has a lot to do with the people who you put in charge. So um, that, that is definitely, you know, it's, a, it's an essential part that you cannot, uh, um, you, 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 just, you just cannot ignore whether you are, you know, organizing your, your entity as a company, as a democracy, as a DAO, or whatever, okay? You just have to, you have to have good quality people. That, that's just the, the, the bare minimum. So, um, Next question from Anonymous. Uh, using protectionist measures on layer one, layer two chains and seeing them as nation state is very thoughtful. However, how would leaders come into power to make these changes and create a path forward? Is this where DAOs come in? Okay, so, 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 you know, the short answer is, I think these, we are in, again, a kind of an infancy stage in terms of how these public platforms, these blockchain platforms are going to be governed. So if you look at the existing examples, okay, so if you look at the layer one chains, the Ethereum, Avalanche, or Near, or whatever, these are public blockchains in the sense that they're permissionless, right? So everybody can build on top. 
but there's also a governing body or or or, or several governing body at the same time they are kind of setting the vision of the development of the ecosystem and they're building the infrastructure and they are you know designing subsidies and incentives for developers and they are doing the marketing and advertising for their platform and you know doing a bunch of in essentially industrial pro uh, policy practices so ethereum has consensus right and 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 it has you know some 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 other you know governing like semi governing bodies as well avalanche has avalabs near has near foundation or near inc solana has a you know solana foundation or something something <laughs> but my 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 point is you can you can already see this uh this uh like a kind of a parallel system right on one hand you have this public permissionless uh, public infrastructure any anybody can build on top but there is in parallel the kind of governing body that are kind of making the decisions making the broad decisions for the development of this specific platform which you will argue that serves as the purpose of a semi government though i know like people pissed off hearing the word of government okay um but that's that's essentially what it is okay so um and 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 whether these whether these governing bodies uh, how are those going to be governed? Are they a traditional corporate format, which at the present, a lot of them are, okay? Or traditional nonprofit, which, you know, but, but still follow a corporate structure. You have a board, you have a, you know, executive team and so on and so forth. Um, or, you, or are they going to be structured as DAOs? And what exactly is DAO structured nowadays? There are so many different variations. <laughs> so, um, because DAOs are just, a, you know, such even a much newer thing than, than blockchain, right? So, 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 so I think we're still in this kind of experimentation phase. And, uh, um, we are we are basically trying to see what you know doing ex all these different chains are doing these uh, govern governing experiments to see what will fit what 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 kind of a governing structure or um, you know structure of organizing production activities will fit best the you know permissionless and uh, you know um, uh, open development kind of nature of, of of blockchain ecosystems because it is different right compared to our traditional um, ways of, uh, of of organizing productions so um my my uh impression i wouldn't say it's a prediction but i i, I think we will have something that is that strikes a middle ground okay it will not be as hierarchical or tightly knit as traditional corporates or tightly controlled as traditional corporates in terms of how these chains are governed but it would not be anarchy either otherwise you know a, a chain that practice anarchy <laughs> is not going to outcompete other chains i'm sorry okay so um so 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 I, I I think the direction we will have is something in the middle. How how what specific form that it's gonna gonna take? It probably varies across across different chains, and it you know everybody will learn from everybody else. So, but in the end, you know, um, traditionally we have I I talked about this before. We have like two types of uh, 
you know, economic uh, uh, two types of ways to organize economic activities. We have company and we have market, right? So company is like a really tight, uh, you know, group of people like working together to make a product. Market on on the other on the other hand is very loosely connected, like different production units exchange and transaction with each other. But they are essentially doing the same thing. They're all like producing things and making things happen. It's just two different, two like uh, extremes of the spectrum in terms of how the activities are structured, right? So uh, maybe maybe DAOs or the you know blockchain governing bodies, I don't know what they will be called in the future, maybe they will be something in the middle, which is like a semi, semi-market and semi-corporate. Like, uh, you know, tight, tighter knit than market, but, you know, more loosely structured than corporate, which I think is, is the way to go um, for, you know, not just for blockchain activities, but for how, you know, economic production activities will be structured in general in the future. Because, you know, um, so, so there are economic series of, uh, you know, which type of activities is better suited um, as being organized as the market or as being organized as corporate. It depends on, you know, the cost of doing certain transactions. But, you know, I, I think we, we, we will probably in the future converge to some kind of middle ground because the cost of transacting uh, between different entities is going down because of the, you know, different types of uh, technology advances we have these days, including the blockchain. Okay. Um, so, so, so that, that makes a, that makes a kind of arm's length transaction less costly and makes that kind of a loosely, loosely connected organization as a way to, you know, produce or innovate or organize the economy to become more effective or attractive as opposed to the, the, the two other extremes. Okay. So, um, but what what is the specific form it's going to take? I don't know, but I, I think this is a you know really exciting um, development that we are seeing happening right in front of eyes. Okay, so um, okay, we've uh, already taken a long time <laughs> to talk about this one topic. Um, I thought I'm gonna you know talk about some like market updates, but I just you know I don't think we have time. So, but maybe briefly. <laughs> Okay, just like uh, f five more minutes. Um, talk about like a market. So uh, we had a, a FOMC meeting in May last week, right? So uh, uh, the Fed raised uh, 50 basis points, uh, which was ex ex expect expected by everybody, I would say. And they also say they're going to raise 50 basis points and going on for the next couple months and, you know, and so, so on and so forth. And they're going to start tapering. Um, you know, shrinking their balance sheet and balance sheet is already flat for a couple months now. So, and at the same time, you already see, you know, financial market condition tightening with uh, inflation going up uh, with, uh, you know, and also you see in the last month that people had to pay taxes. So uh, it kind of, uh, you know, uh, shrunk the market liquidity a bunch. Um, it, you can, you can see that in the, you know, um, uh, in 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 the uh, in the balance of uh, money market funds and uh, you know reserve like a base money uh, you know outstanding uh, like amount of base money uh, you know data you can see all of those are going down so basically it tells you like uh, some 
liquidity is being taken out of the market. So long story short, none of this is good news <laughs> for risk assets, right? So, um, but you've already known that. Um, I've already talked about it multiple times on, on the podcast. So, um, but we already, but you know, like uh, for example, this weekend we see a huge sell-off um, and also, you know, there's something going on with, uh, you know, uh, there's some fog going on with Luna. So that's, uh, that triggers some, some, uh, uh, some extent of market sell-off into other tokens as well. Um, but I think these are, you know, like a, like a really short term. I think we, we, we probably see a rebound for the rest of the month. Um, so, um, but the big picture is, I don't think the big picture has changed. The big picture is we are going into a tighter and tighter monetary policy conditions and uh, um, high, you know, inflation remains high, which means liquidity being squeezed again. Um, so it's, uh, we don't have a lot of good news for risk assets. Okay. So, um, and I don't see this uh, change, uh, you know, for, for the immediate term, I would say, you know, maybe next to three months, three, four months, I don't see this changing. Um, I, so, uh, what, so, so in terms of market strategies, um, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, um, so, a, a while ago I talked about, like, I, I had like, uh, uh, a fair share of allocation and cash, right? I'm, I'm no longer, you know, uh, like, uh, that much in cash. I, you know, because, uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we've had, uh, a lot of uh, sell-off in the market, so um, there there are some uh, some tokens that and you know I, I was hoping to buy and I bought them, uh, but they they kept dropping, so <laughs> they'll probably drop more. So I would say, um, and and also I'm also invested in commodities like you know agricultural commodities and uh, you know natural gas companies, for example. So these are like hedges against inflation in the short term. Um, and especially the type of inflation we have is not like, uh, it's more related to supply chain and, uh, you know, the supply of raw materials being squeezed. So this is different type of inflation as opposed to the monetary inflation caused by excessive money, money printing, right? So, um, so I would say, you know, agricultural commodities or, you know, um, uh, energy commodities, uh, some of the precious metal commodities, um, they could, they, they, they could, they, they could be good hedge against this type of inflation in the short term. Well, on the other hand, you know, um, uh, I, I, I still, you know, I'm fully confident that crypto market, um, uh, will be, will grow a whole lot in the long term. So, uh, nothing has changed in that front. So for me, this is almost like a barbell strategy. I'm invested in commodities on one hand to hedge against inflation, and this is more of a short-term nature. On the other hand, I'm trying to, you know, get more tokens <laughs> um, uh, when, when, when there is sell-off. So um, you, you can call this a kind of a barbell, you know, basically the short-term, you know, commodities, and medium to long-term, you know, betting, continual betting on crypto. Um, uh, so, and, you know, uh, I'm not holding any equities um, because I think it's neither here nor there. Um, to me, crypto is like a high, you know, it's already a, like a priced as, um, you know, high growth startups, uh, high, you know, high growth stocks, except it has, uh, you know, h even higher beta. 
than high growth stocks. So I, I think uh, with with good quality crypto projects that you uh, you're confident that will survive the winter or survive the bear market, I think it's a better play compared to equities. But you know that's that's my just my opinion. So um, that would be so so that would be my um, my allocation is commodities and crypto <laughs> for the bear market. So um, that's all for today, and I will talk to you later.